says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us and adopted us to Himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in His Beloved. Amen for our adoption this morning. Thank God we can say with all confidence that we are children of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what, we, but because of what He has done for us on the, the work and the resurrection. So amen for our adoption this morning. Let us pray, and then we'll get into 1 Timothy chapter 3. God, You are faithful and You are kind and You are good to us. And God, though we may not always feel that, that is the reality, that is what is true. And truth always trumps our feelings. And so God, I pray for each one of us this morning that we would stand confidently and boldly before You as sons and daughters, before a high King. And because of that, God, we have all that we need to live a life of godliness and holiness. And we have a God that cares deeply for each one of us and knows exactly what we need. And God, I know our church is going through a lot. Families are struggling and individuals are struggling. And yet we confidently come to you and say, Lord Jesus, care for our great needs. And you will do that. And you are doing it. So even this morning, as we have already sung praises to you, I pray that each one of us would not leave the same, but we would leave more sanctified, more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that the washing and the reading of Your Word over our lives and hearts would be transformational. So lead us this morning, guide us. You get all the honor and glory and praise this morning. Give us great strength and wisdom. We praise for the mighty name of King Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. We are continuing back in our series in 1 Timothy. Uh, we will be in chapter 3. We'll cover all the way to the end of 13. Though Jared read to us just 1 through 7, uh, there's two distinct things I'll talk about in this message. I'll focus on verses 1 through 7 primarily this morning. There's an overlap in the text with uh, verses 8 through 13. So just for the sake of time, next week we'll move down into verse 14. So I'll cover just for a moment uh, these two unique roles in the church this morning. I want us to remind us and remember what the book of 1 Timothy is written for. Timothy is a, a young apprentice of the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary that our world has ever seen, and in my opinion will ever see. Uh, he took the, the gospel message that was once just for the Jews and bridged the gap to the Gentiles, you and I are Gentiles. And so, because of the missionary work of Paul, we get to sit in church and praise God. He's the greatest missionary. And so he's writing young Timothy, uh, a young pastor, and he's saying to young Timothy, hey, you're going to need to fight the good fight of the faith. He bookends the book with those two in, verse, uh, in chapter 1 and in chapter 6. He talks about Timothy, 
You, the pastor, must shepherd these people that God has entrusted you with to fight the good fight of the faith. And if we remember back in chapter 1, there's uh, some individuals that came into the body that were wreaking havoc doctrinally in the church. And they were beginning to spread lies within the church. These were leaders in the church. And so Paul is, is, is equipping young Timothy, how do you fight the good fight and protect what God has entrusted the church with? And then he says this in verse 15. We'll look at this next week. It says this. If I delay to you, Timothy, you may know who you ought to behave in the household of God. This is how you are to act in the church. This is how you are to protect the doctrine. This is how you are to assemble the body. This is how you are to govern the church. This is how the church ought to operate. All for one purpose and one purpose only. That is for the sake of the gospel. So everything that this book is hinging on is how do we protect the gospel that Christ has entrusted the church with. That's what's so unique about us, the church. That God Almighty has entrusted to the church the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, both for our sanctification and for the proclamation to unbelievers that they would fall on their face before a holy God. That's what He entrusted us with. That is an amazing call on our lives as individuals and collectively as the church. And so what Paul is going to do here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is how does the church govern itself to protect the gospel? And so there's two primary functions in the church. We see that it started back in Acts chapter 6. If you remember back in Acts, Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. That's the proclamation of the Word of God on Pentecost and thousands of unbelievers started repenting and coming to faith in Christ and their numbers grew daily. I mean, you talk about a great awakening. Pentecost was the greatest awakening that the world has ever seen. And what was happening was as the church was growing and they were assembling more and more, the pastors or the apostles got overwhelmed. And so they come to Acts chapter 6 and what was happening for the apostles was the thing that God had called them to do was to proclaim the word to the people of God so that they could take the word of God to the uttermost parts of the world to continue on in evangelism. And so what the apostle, the apostles did, they came together and said, hey, this is too much for us. What God has called us to is to be overseers of the doctrine of the truth and to preach and teach. And now we need to have deacons to go and serve the body. Because we cannot both preach and serve. And God has called us to be preachers that serve through the pulpit ministry, and through proclaiming the Word of God. And so we see in Acts chapter 6 all the way now that there's two primary roles in the church. It's the overseer, the elder, the bishop that we see here in chapter 3, and the deacon. These are two unique and distinct roles. They are not the same. They do not overlap each other. The elders are called to do two things. We'll see in this text what the elders are called to do 
And then we'll also see what the deacons are called to do. The deacons are called to serve the body. The elders are called to govern and rule the body. They're two distinct roles. And so, church, we need to have two distinct roles here at Powell's Chapel. We must have elders and we must have deacons. That goes all the way back to our confession back in England when we were Baptists in England. And that's carried on all the way to today. Even our Baptist faith and message talks about there's two distinct roles in the church. Elders, pastors, and deacons. And so I want to talk to us today about the role of an elder. Now the qualifications look almost the same for elders and deacons. It's the function that is different. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. It says this. We're going to look at several things. The overseers, the first thing we'll see this morning is the noble task of an overseer. It says this. This is a trustworthy saying. This saying is trustworthy. This is the second time in this small letter that the, the Apostle Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying. The first time is in uh, when he's talking about that God has come through Christ Jesus to save everyone. The, the third time is when he's going to say, hey, God's going to save everyone. And so sandwiched in the middle of saving everyone, he said a trustworthy say, statement is, how do you govern the church? So of all the things he could have said was trustworthy, he says how you govern the church is of utmost importance. So it's a, it's a noble calling. It's a, it's a thing that we must aspire to. The word aspire there means to stretch out. So the, the calling on the life of an individual to being elder or to be an overseer is a noble task. Which means not everyone that's a, a male ought to be an overseer. It's a calling on God, through God, on a man's life. We covered the, the, the distinction between men and women three weeks ago. Women are not called to be elders. That's the role of a man. And so men, I think this, this is not just for us elders, but all these qualifications must be true for every man in this building. I will say that. And so that's the noble task to be an elder. Now he says to us, this is the character or the morals of what an overseer must look like. Verse 2, therefore an overseer, an elder, a bishop, a pastor, all those words throughout the New Testament are synonymous with one another. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. I'll skip the next two. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So now the morals or the character of what an elder is to look like. This word you see, must, is where he starts. An overseer must. That, that word means it's necessary. It's a requirement. You cannot be an elder if these things in your life do not add up. And so if, if you want to be an elder or if you are an elder, myself, Brother Frank, we are elders in this church. We are pastors in this church. So he's talking primarily to you and I, Frank. But I say this to the rest of the men. He is talking to all of us as men in this church. 
Because the men in the church are who are called to lead the church. But my greatest fear is this. That the church has been led primarily through to, by women, which is a mistake, which is a sin. Men, we must lead the church. That is our call on our lives to do. And so I'd ask this question as you, it's addressing the elders, but it's addressing every man in this congregation. Is this true about your life? The first is this. We must be above reproach, it says. That word means this, that we must be blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. What the Apostle Paul was saying to young Timothy, you, Timothy, you must be a blameless man as you lead the church, meaning that no one ought to be able to come with an attack against you, that you live your life so blamelessly before other people that there can be no accusation brought before you. I wonder, church, and I wonder, men, how blameless we are when nobody's looking. See, to be blameless publicly and to be blameless privately, those both have to go hand in hand. We must, men, be above reproach. We must have a character about ourselves. I believe the Apostle Paul started with above reproach because every other characteristic will fall under that umbrella. So he starts with being above reproach because if you're above reproach, you're not going to give yourself to much wine. If you're above reproach, you're not going to give yourself to much money. If you're above reproach, the list goes on. Here's what one writer says about being above reproach and about this office of being an elder. The office and the work of being spiritual is not necessarily that the elders should be spiritual men. It's not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly possession, or wealthy, or high educated, but it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God, at peace with Him, new creatures in Christ Jesus. That should be true of every one of us in this room, male and female. And then he goes on, we must be a brother approach, and then he says this, we must be husbands of one wife. There's been much debate about this part in the text. What is the Apostle Paul talking about? He talks about that with deacons as well. That deacons and elders must be husbands of one wife. Well, first I'll say this. It's okay if a man aspires to be an elder and if he's single. You can have single elders. You do not have to be married. So what is Paul talking about? I believe what also Paul is talking is not talking about is that you cannot be divorced and serve as an elder and a deacon. If you look at the, the Greek structure of the sentence, what the Apostle Paul is saying is you must be a one-woman man. That there ought to be no women to divide you and your wife. And so the Apostle Paul is not talking about divorce. He's talking about the state of mind and the state of heart of the individual. Can every man in this room say, I am a one woman man to my wife and to my wife alone? And so if you are divorced this morning, I would say this to you. Are you now living your life as a one woman man? Or is your heart still divided? 
If it's divided, you cannot serve as a deacon or an elder. That's the qualification that Christ, through the Apostle Paul, has put on to us. He goes on to say this. We are to be above reproach. We are to be husbands of one wife. And we are to be sober-minded. What does the word sober-minded mean? It's interesting that in this text that you see two different times he talks about sober-minded and not being drunk. So what is the Apostle Paul meaning in this part? Because he's going to get to giving ourselves to much wine in a moment. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this, that we must have level heads, that we must be free from every form of excess passion and rashness, that we must think level-headedly. To lead a church is not an easy task. We cannot be hot-tempered. We cannot lead God's people and be hot-tempered. We must be level-headed. We must be sober-minded. says this, why must we be sober-minded? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. The Apostle Peter tells us to be sober-minded. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says this, be sober-minded. How come we are to be sober-minded? So that we can be watchful. Why are we to be watchful? For we have an adversary, the devil, that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So be sober-minded so that you can resist him. You see, to be an elder or to be a deacon, we must be sober-minded because here's the reality of it. When you do the works of God, and God is moving in the life of a church, you better believe that Satan is on the prowl waiting to devour and attack. He does not have to be devouring and attacking unbelievers. Why? Because he has already has the unbeliever in his grasp. It's those that God has plucked from Satan's hand and placed in his own hand that now we must be sober-minded under the understanding that we have an adversary that wants to kill and destroy us, the church. How come? Why does Satan want to destroy the church? Because Satan knows if he can destroy the church, destroy families in the church, then the proclamation and the gospel of Jesus Christ will, will be stunted from going out to the uttermost of the world. Because it's our responsibility, church, to take the gospel message. And so Satan is going to always be on the prowl for us. So we must be sober-minded. And so are we sober-minded? And then he says this, we must be self-controlled and under self-control, he lists two things. We must not be drunk and we must not be violent. To be sober-minded is not only to be sober-minded, but now to be self-controlled means to have a sound mind to make clear decisions. And that's where he goes into, you cannot make clear decisions if you have given yourself too much wine, too much alcohol. If you've ever been around a, a person that drinks a lot, they think they are the smartest, most brilliant people in the world. And then they start talking like, man, you're about the dumbest person in the world. I once had a young man say this to me. And I was asking him about this question as he wanted to aspire to be a, a, an elder. He wanted to be a pastor. And so 
Uh, myself and Jared were in the car with this young man, and we were talking about this idea. I said, well, have you ever been drunk? He said, no, never. I said, you've never been drunk? So you've been to college, done the party scene, never been? Nope. I said, well, how do, how do, you, how do you know you've never been drunk? He said, because I drove home. I was like, now wait a second. You weren't drunk because you were able to drive? And then we, and then Jared and I began to ask him questions. Well, how much did you have to drink that night? And he began to spell out all that he had to drink. And I'm like, oh no, you were definitely intoxicated. But he thought he was in his right mind because he was able to operate a vehicle. And the list goes on. We can all tell stories of what alcoholic has done to people. So he says, to the elders and to the deacons, we must not give ourselves to much wine. Paul is not saying that we aren't to give ourselves to any wine. He tells us that in a few uh, letters ago. He tells um, the, the church, hey, it's okay to drink wine for your stomach, for medicinal purposes. Uh, again, you, you see throughout the Gospels that Christ Jesus himself drank wine. He's not saying that you must be totally absent from wine. He's saying we must not give ourselves completely to wine and let wine dictate us. We must have self-control over the wine. So he says, have self-control with what you drink. He says, have self-control with how you behave. He says, do not be violent. Do not be rageful. You ever been around a rage-filled person? They act like a drunk person. They go into these rage fits and then after they come out of the rage fits, they can't even remember what they've done. And so what the Apostle Paul is, you, you must not be rageful and you not, must not be drunk. You must be self-controlled so that you can have a sober mind so that then you can be above reproach. And then he says this. We must be gentle. That word means to be gracious, to be kind, to have restraint, and to be tolerant. Again, if you look at the flow of how Paul is writing to young Timothy, they fall into order. You cannot be gentle and be given too much violence. Those two do not go hand in hand. So he's saying you must be not violent, but not being violent, you must also be gentle. You must be kind. You must be tender-hearted. And then he says this, you must not be quarrelsome. You must not be argumentative. What Paul is talking to young uh, Timothy about is, he'll say it in a few uh, verses later, that we aren't to get into senseless arguments about theology. What, what the Apostle Paul is talking about. If you've ever been around a young convert, one of the things they love to do is to debate theology. And it's like, and you have no idea even what you're talking about. And so he's saying to the elders, don't, don't, you don't have to argue about theology. Let God and God alone reveal truth to people. You just speak the truth and let them deal with the truth. So those are the characteristics. And the last one, he says this. We must not be lovers of money. He says this in 1 Peter. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock, or shepherd in the flock, pastors of the church of God that are among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not shamefully, not for shameful gain, but for eager anticipation. 
If you do this job for money, you've done it for the wrong reason. I've known a number of pastors that have gotten into the ministry to make money. Which, A, seems really crazy because there's not a lot of money. Unless you do it the wrong way. Now, there is a guy in Texas with goofy hair that lives in a $10 million home. That just seems off to me. That just seems off. I love what uh, Pastor Rick Warren has done. If you know Rick Warren, Rick Warren started a church in California, Saddleback Church. It's one of the largest churches in, in America. Top five largest churches. And he wrote this book several years ago, The Purpose Driven Life, and it gained all this recognition. And he made millions and millions and millions of dollars off of it. But you know what Rick Warren did with the proceeds of that book? He lives on 10% of the proceeds. Now, that's still a lot of money. But he gave 90% back to the church. And then, since he started the church, he paid back the church every dollar that was ever given to him by the church. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it for money. He does it for the gospel and to preach the gospel to people. I have a buddy who was on staff there uh, at Saddleback. And he said one day they came in. You've got to remember, this is a church of about 20,000 people. They had 300 staff, over 300 staff members. And he said one day they came in and at everyone's desk was a brand new computer and monitor. And on it, the, on the monitor, I believe it said, um, thank you for your service, Pastor Rick. He bought the entire staff new computers. See, that's a man that was not doing it for money. See, what happens when in, Jesus said it himself, Jesus says, you cannot have two masters. You will either serve the one and neglect the other, but you cannot serve both. Remember what he says about that. Don't give yourself too much money. And so the Apostle Paul is coming back to that to young Timothy. So those are the qualifications of an elder. Those are what the characteristics of an elder looks uh, are to look like. And then he says, these are the duties of an elder. Just two duties goes back to the verse that I skipped. The duties of an elder are to do two things. Are to be hospitable and to teach the word. That's all that elders are called to do. It's our mission statement, is it not? To know God and to make Him known. You cannot be hospitable and not be around people. We as pastors, as elders... Are, are to welcome outsiders. What that word there literally means is to be lovers of strangers. That's what the word hospitable means. He's talking about outsiders. He's not even talking about those in the church. Paul's saying we must be hospitable to those outside the church. And he's going to get to it in a few moments. When you're hospitable, then you're going to invite outsiders into your home and you're going to show the outsider of the church what it looks like to have a healthy home, which is a model of what it looks like to have a healthy church. And so he's saying we must be hospitable. We must invite outsiders in. He says that to the deacons. He's saying don't just have an inward focus, but we must as a church, as leaders, have an outward focus to lost people. And then he says this, we must be able to teach. One writer says this about hospitable before I move on to teaching. 
the Christian leader must be a man with an open heart and an open house. Those are qualifications. And then he says we must be teachers. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, the teaching of God's word was beginning to get bogged down because of the service in the church. And so they selected seven people to go be deacons, to serve the church. And they were going to give themselves to the teaching and proclamation of God's word. One writer says this about the qualifications of teaching. The, the overseer must have the gift of teaching. You have to have the gift of teaching. That's the call that God has placed on your life to be a teacher. You must have a deep understanding of the doctrine of the word of God. That you must really know and have studied God's word. You must be humble. You must be marked with a life of holiness. And you must continue to study the word of God. And then you must be courageous enough to proclaim the word of God. That's what it means to teach the word of God. And now he moves on to how we are to manage or govern our family. Which is exactly how we are to manage and govern the church. He says the word manage, it has two meanings in the Greek. The first meaning is this, we must rule our house. He says that in verse 4, he must, be, he must manage his own house well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? So we must rule the house. And the next part of that word, manage, is to show concern for the house. And so I ask, do we rule the house of God? Do we manage the house of God? And do we show concern for the house of God? Then he moves on to our experience. He says that we must not be young converts. That word means, that word recent means newly planted. We must be spiritually mature. He's not talking about physical age. He's talking about spiritual age. There's a lot of godly men that are well in their 60s. And there's a lot of ungodly men that have been in the church well in their 60s. He's not talking about age. He's talking about the spiritual heart of a man that we must be uh, experienced in the Word of God. And he says he doesn't want new converts to be elders because he has fear that they'll be prideful. And if they're prideful, then they'll get puffed up with air. And they get puffed up with air, then, then they'll be given over to every wind and doctrine. They won't be able to stand for anything because they're so prideful. They think they have arrived and done something with it. So we must be mature in our walk with the Lord Jesus. Two more and then we'll finish. He says this. He goes back to our reputation. We must be well thought of. That word well thought of, we must be a beautiful or a good witness to the outside. Not just the insider, but the outsider. It's about missions. And he gives one last warning. He says this, Moreover, you must be well thought of by outsiders so that you may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. What is he talking about to the elders? I believe this in closing. That when we get prideful, the Satan will attack. Is that not where he attacks primarily is in pride? Oh, I got this. 
The moment we think we got it, we don't have it. And what is he telling us to be watchful for? What is he saying to be on guard for? Because he knows, the Apostle Paul knows, what is the primary instrument to a lost world? It's the church. It's the individuals in the church. And so he says, don't fall into the snare of the devil, but to be watchful of him, that we may not be fall into disgrace and snares of the devil. And he just made mention of it, would be well thought of by outsiders. I don't think necessarily it's this. I don't think it's that outsiders have a problem with the message. I think it's the outsiders have a problem with the messenger. I know the message is offensive. But if you talk to people and you really start talking to unbelievers that don't want to come to the church, they don't talk about the message. They talk about the hypocrite who delivers the message. So he's saying, hey, we must be well thought of. Yes, us as elders. Yes, you deacons. But I believe everyone in this church. Do we have a reputation with the world that's above reproach? That isn't given to much wine? That manages our own household well? and has a gentle spirit with the greatest message to ever be delivered. It's not the message. It's the messenger. So in closing, I say this. There are two primary roles in the church. The elders and the deacons. The elders are called by God to serve you with faithful teaching of the Word of God. The deacons are given to you by God to faithfully serve you, to grow in your dependence as a church so that you can be open to the Word of God through the elders. And I say this to us, Palace Chapel. Have we taken the model of the New Testament church? And do we govern ourselves with elders and do we govern ourselves with deacons? And then I'd say this in closing. I'd ask that you pray for your elders and your deacons. You have two elders, pastors, myself and Frank, and you have a handful of deacons that serve this body faithfully. I love our deacons. I love serving with our deacons, both the past and the present deacons. You have an amazing group of deacons and elders that love you and serve you, but put God primary in their lives and before this church so that they can serve and love you. And so I say to you, church, and I beg this from you, the same way that it happened in Acts chapter 6, that they set apart for themselves the apostles and the deacons, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. I ask for your prayers as a church for your deacons and your elders. Five things I'd ask that you'd pray for us as we lead this church to be all that God wants it to be. I ask you to pray for these five things. That you would pray that we would keep our eyes on God daily. That He would be the source of our strength. That we would not, the second would would be this, that we would not rely on our own strength, but as we keep our eyes on God, we rely on His strength. The third is this, that we would be wise in how God has called us to lead you.
That is the role of an elder. That's the role of a deacon. That we would lead you like sheep. And we need God's wisdom to do that. The fourth one is this. That we would continue to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly and confidently. And the last is this. That we would continue to weep over the sins of people. Same way that Jesus, when He walked out and looked over Jerusalem, that His heart broke for the people that were harassed and lost and broken. That we, your elders and deacons, would pray for that. And the last one I would do and ask that you would pray might be the most important at all, that you would pray for us and our families. God wants to attack or Satan wants to attack our families. Because we cannot manage our own house. We cannot manage this house. And then I'd ask as a congregation as a whole that we would do this. That we would fervently pray for one another. We've seen the mighty hand of God move in the first two months of this, this year in mighty ways. We've seen salvations. We've seen baptism. We've seen new families come into this church. But there's, a, there's a, some things behind the scenes that not everyone gets to see. But we, your elders and your deacons, we have seen things that are breaking our hearts. Families are struggling. Families are, are being disintegrated. Families are going through crisis. And I believe that's because of the sovereign hand of God at work. And if the sovereign hand of God at work, that means Satan's just as, as, as much as God is working, Satan's on the move. And so we must hold each other up in prayer. God is at work in this place. Remember, in eight weeks, we've seen four baptisms, and there's a fifth coming in a couple weeks. That is something we ought to praise God for. That is five salvations. Those are five miracles. And Satan is not happy. And Satan will be on the attack against this sweet church. So we must pray fervently for our elders, our deacons, and the people within this church. Because God wants to use this church to redeem the world. Here in Walter Hill, here in Middle Tennessee, to the four corners of the world. That's what we just gave money to this morning. We may not all get to go on a foreign mission trip, but we can give to foreign missions so the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring hope to the nations. But it starts here, this house chapel, with your elders, your deacons, and with the body. Let us pray. God, you have designed your church to be led by elders. And you've designed your church to be served by deacons. And I pray, God, that we would look to your word, how we are to govern this church, not by our opinions, but by yours and yours alone. And God, I say this, I am grateful. for a fellow elder and brother Frank. 
what he means to me in my own life as an elder. And yet, God, I am so grateful for our deacons. Jack, Jonathan, Mike, Jerry. I'm so grateful for all they do. God, we love this church. I pray it would be a demonstration of how much you love this church. And God, I pray now for your hedge of protection on our church. These last few weeks in the life of this church have not been easy. And many families are struggling. And many families are, are hitting a place of brokenness. And hitting a place of rock bottom. God, I pray that you, through your son today, would bring hope to these families. You bring hope to this church. That we do not serve a God of hopelessness, but we serve a God who restores and redeems and rescues all of us in this place. And there is hope for every one of us in this place. No matter how bad it's gotten, God, that you are the God that gives life and life to the full. And so I pray for those families Today, God. I pray for us that are interacting with them, God, that you give us strength, that you give us uh, just the ability to be a sense of encouragement, even if we have no words to speak. That, God, they would come into this place and they'd feel encouraged by the body. That they are not alone. And that we will walk with them no matter how messy it gets. You are a faithful God. You are a compassionate God. And you are a forgiving God. That loves us unconditionally. And gave your Son for us unconditionally. That we would have life 